0: It's a typically
1: busy afternoon at Sunshine House, a community centre in Wigan in the northwest of England. In the brightly lit cafe, families from the neighbourhood are wolfing down shepherd's pie and lemon meringue. Meanwhile, members of an adult social care group called the Smile Project, people dealing with dementia, loneliness and mental health issues, are getting ready to play bingo.
2: It's
3: down
1: for ice cream, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, ice cream's oh, on its yeah, way. I've got chocolate cake and ice cream. I'm Patricia Needle. I'm 84 years old. Patricia comes to the Smile Project almost every day.
2: Well, it means security, and I know I'm safe, and I've got my meals, and I've got company. Not sat in a house all by yourself on your own because I hate being in the house on my own. I do like people. I always have done. When I first got married, I was in Silver Street and we had enough licence. I worked seven days a week in there, 11 hours a day. I used to walk, I used to take my trolley and I could drive, but I stopped driving at 8 because I didn't think I was safe enough. And with all the things that have been pulled down and rebuilt, I don't know where I am half the time. <laughs> Everything's so different. Different world today. My memory's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> you have a lot of things. Exercises, card bingo, play cards right. I mean, they come here and they can get fish, chips, and mushy peas on a Friday for three pounds. They can't beat it off. The
3: Smell Project is an adult social care project.
1: Barbara Nettleton runs Sunshine House, and she's a formidable presence in the local community.
3: But where sometimes you get your social care projects are all designed around one particular, um, like say Alzheimer's or dementia or um, learning difficulties. Well, we don't. We put everybody together and they support each other because you live in a mixed society, don't you? you don't live where everybody just suffers from the same thing.
1: She says Sunshine House is a one-stop shop. There's a food pantry, a charity shop, affordable housing advice, legal help, addiction support, art classes.
3: Because once they come through the doors, it's easy to engage them in other things.
1: In one sense, Sunshine House seems to lay bare all that's wrong with Wigan. It's a town that displays many, if not most, of the familiar markers of those infamous, though perhaps misleadingly labelled, left-behind communities. Post-industrial decline, an ageing population... Poverty and a host of social issues. But in Wigan, there's another side to the story, and it's far more interesting.
3: I think we're leading the light as tones. You know, for me, it were the best tone there is.
1: In the last few years, despite being one of the council's hardest hit by austerity, Wigan has seen significant improvements in the health, satisfaction, and overall happiness of its residents. Mm. So how have they managed to do this? And is Wigan an example that others should follow? Here in the UK, almost half of us live in towns. And they come in many shapes and sizes. There are seaside towns, commuter towns, post-industrial towns, market towns. But there is a narrative that unites them. Decades of investment in cities has left towns exposed vulnerable to austerity and the challenges posed by globalisation and technological change. And, of course, these were precisely the factors that lay behind the Brexit vote of June 2016, when Wigan, like the vast majority of towns, voted to leave the European Union. 64% of Wigan voted for Brexit. Brexit, as commentators never tire of pointing out, represented a wake-up call for the establishment. And in the weeks that followed that vote what those in the north like to call the London media, flocked to post-industrial towns such as Wigan to try to figure out what had happened.
4: Now, a lot of people in the south are kind of pointing their finger to the north, saying that people that voted to leave are racist or xenophobic or don't know what they're talking about. So we've come up here to speak to people and find out what's going on.
1: And as a result, a narrative took shape. One populated by faded high streets with boarded-up shops littered with jobless residents, all nostalgic for the good old days. Very little street life here. All you can really hear is the distant hum of a nearby A road.
4: What happened here? Why are all these shops shut down here? No, it's been Two while, years
2: ago eh? that closed down. It used to sell blinds. The barn stands never used. There's too many pigeons.
1: Such has been the strength of this narrative that it's shaped our politics.
3: These streets were once full of spirit and hope
1: the Labour Party devoted a whole video to telling us why we should care about towns. We
3: lost the factories. We lost the jobs. We lost confidence in our community. We lost control.
1: And only a few weeks ago, Prime Minister Theresa May launched her Stronger Towns Fund, allocating £1.6 billion to precisely those areas that haven't benefited from economic growth.
5: This is a fund that is there
1: to deliver for those areas as we look to leave the European Union. So it is about that
5: shared sense of prosperity.
1: Many see the initiative as a naked bribe intended to convince MPs in leave voting towns to support her Brexit deal.
5: My constituents uh, are wise enough to know uh, a trick when they see it, and this is an almighty trick.
6: So this doesn't help anybody. In fact, it's almost more insulting. It's like she's realised there's a problem, and here you go, here's some scraps to try and fix it. It doesn't help.
1: So there's a lot happening, but amidst all the noise, it's hard to avoid the impression that we're still not paying enough attention to what exactly is happening in towns or to the fact that people who live in towns might well be better placed than politicians based in London to understand their needs, the challenges they face and potential solutions to them. I should admit to a personal interest here. I grew up in another northern town, Wakefield in Yorkshire. My memories of Wigan are largely negative. Sunday afternoon coach journeys to watch my rugby league team get slaughtered. But Wigan does represent a whole plethora of places, including my own hometown, overlooked for far too long by national governments and still wrestling with the resultant problems. Of course, the aftermath of the Brexit referendum wasn't the first time Wigan's been painted with what some would call a broad brush. Columbus
4: sailed the Atlantic, the first steam engines tottered into motion, the British squares stood firm under the French guns at Waterloo, the one-eyed scoundrels
1: of the 19th century praised God and filled their pockets. And this is where it all led to, to labyrinthine slums and dark back kitchens with sickly, ageing people creeping round and round them like black beetles. Over 80 years ago, George Orwell visited Wigan and penned his polemic, The Road to Wigan Pier, which chronicles the struggles of miners and mill workers.
7: Right, which way do you want to go and what do you want to see?
1: On a windy afternoon, we take a walk through Wigan with Andrew Knoll, a reporter for the Wigan Post and the Wigan Observer.
7: I always wanted to write and I always liked it. One of my mum's friends told me that, you know, you could write every day as a journalist when I was about 12, 13. And I'd sort of set my ambition on that ever since.
1: He reckons Orwell continues to loom large in the town's psyche.
7: A lot of older generations still dislike Orwell intensely. They think that he was a public school educated man who came to the north, looked patronisingly at working class people, drew his own conclusions and then slated them in his book other people saw him as as, you know serving a very noble purpose trying to highlight industrial um, fatalities and injury rates which were horrendous in the pre-health and safety era but there's been opportunities to try to revive him a bit there's a a new musical that's been written about him and also some of our sort of Labour and Green politicians those on on the left have tried to say that it's a point of pride really that, that Orwell is part of Wigan and Britain's radical history so this is it this is the famous Wigan Pier
1: and if it was good enough for Orwell, then it's good enough for us.
7: Once the sort of industrial heartland of Wigan, where coal and other things would be put onto the barges and then taken down down the canal to be sold in Liverpool and taken elsewhere.
1: Today, however, it's basically just some metal railings and a wooden platform.
7: But it has become a no-man's land, as you can see. There is a huge... Uh, pub and restaurant here called the Orwell uh, which is shut down now and various other large industrial buildings in various stages of falling down. It's an area that has been put up for renovation several times. There were plans for a marina and then there were plans for something called the Wigan Pier Quarter which would have been a general leisure and entertainment destination um, but nothing came of any of it.
1: But the rather depressing fate of the pier isn't reflective of the town as a whole. Andrew takes us up the road to the train station where change is afoot
7: the arches beneath the station are now home to wigan central an award-winning railway themed micro pub real ale and cider which camera has given a lot of awards that's the campaign for real ale Uh, and next to that is the recently opened hideout wigan a sort of gin wine coffee bar cafe place and there are two more arches The developers behind them hope to create a tapas bar and an Orwell themed cocktail bar respectively in them.
1: More Shoreditch than Orwell, you might say.
6: I think the biggest problem with what's happened to towns over the last 40 years is not just the economic decline and the the problems that that's created. It's also the fact that many people in towns, rightly, I think, feel utterly ignored and, at worst, disrespected by the political system.
1: That's Lisa Nandy, the MP for Wigan. She's also a co-founder of the Centre for Towns, a think tank, and she argues that whether it's about politics or culture towns have been systematically sidelined.
6: Well, there was a conscious decision taken to abandon them. So first under the Tory government in the 80s, when the decision was made to just abandon those communities who were losing industry hand over fist. And then again with the new Labour government, when a decision was made in the mid 2000s that the future would belong to those areas that were, as Blair put it, swift swift to to adapt. adapt.
7: Slow to complain, open, willing and able to change
1: cities with their populations of well-educated adaptable types became the focus of government attention
7: visit the center of birmingham see liverpool european city of culture for 2008 or glasgow's magnificent pacific quay or cardiff bay and then london
1: unsurprisingly the implication was that opportunities and access to education and resources went to urban areas while towns were left with warehousing companies and unsustainable minimum wage jobs. One consequence of this was that the young fled.
6: Whereas younger people used to live in places like Wigan, Oldham, Bolton and work in the mills and the mines, when industry disappeared from those areas, young people also moved in large numbers during the new labour era. And it was a life-changing opportunity to do so in Wigan. A lot of the young people who went to university in that era for the first time in their family's history... But when they look back, they found there was increasingly nothing to go home to. And Mm. so our towns have aged and our cities have grown younger. And it's that that accounts for these stark differences in views on things like Brexit, on things like immigration. 40 years ago, those views were roughly similar in towns and cities. Now they couldn't be more different. You know, these are the places that are going to determine the outcome of the next general election. And so somebody has got to start taking it seriously or nobody wins a majority.
1: But, of course, it's not necessarily dramatic central government, let alone opposition, interventions that people are after. What would you see as a model that empowers towns more?
6: Well, you've got to push the decision-making powers right down and get very close to those communities where they see what the assets are in their own areas and how you could build on them if you were given proper political power.
1: In Wigan, these ideas have actually been tested, baked into public policy. To understand how, we've got to go back about a decade. Up and down the land, local authorities are in the tortuous process of deciding how to cut their budgets in the light of the government's spending review. Local government finances are in a mess at the moment. In England, they're having to deal with more than a billion pounds of cuts this year. In 2010, Wigan Council learned it would be the third worst affected under the government's new austerity programme. The town was heavily reliant on precisely those grants that austerity targeted because it was home to high levels of hunger, joblessness mental health issues and ageing. Wigan stood to lose some 160 million pounds over the next decade, which meant having to save 15 to 20 million each year. Cuts on this sort of scale were never gonna be easy and the initial reaction of the council was a slogan that backfired straight away, the Wigan deal.
6: Well, it started as a press release, cooked up in the town hall and it caused a lot of anger, and you can understand why. I was one of them. It was a way of explaining the cuts that were coming to the public, and it was launched by the council in the local paper and on billboards around the borough as a fait accompli, and people said, hang on a minute, that's not a deal.
1: But the council moved quickly to rectify its misstep.
6: To her credit, Donna Hall, who was a relatively new chief executive at the time, came in and said, you're absolutely right, it isn't, and we're going to get hold of this and we're going to do it properly.
0: So we knew we had to radically redesign our relationship with residents and rather than just keep making little salami slice cuts to our services, really rethink our role within communities and within society.
1: Donna Hall has run the council for the last eight years, retiring just a few weeks ago. She's been the driving force behind the Wigan deal.
0: It's basically been an eight-year social experiment where we've tried to broker a new social contract between our residents.
1: So this was the deal. Obviously, the council had to scrap some services, but they agreed to freeze council tax... In return, they asked the community to take a more active role in their own well-being and in ensuring the health of the town as a whole. And finally, the council invested millions in hundreds of grassroots initiatives, ranging from community farms to social groups for Alzheimer's patients. Essentially, people in Wigan were being asked to pick up the slack.
3: All of a sudden the focus was on what communities actually do deliver and how can local authorities not cut services, but how can they invest in in communities so services can be delivered differently?
1: And the result? Less bureaucracy, more services and solutions tailor-made to local needs. Of all your achievements, what do you think is the one that's most liked in the community?
0: I think the fact that we're listening, that we're not um, paternalistic. We used to be quite paternalistic as an organisation. We, We listen harder, we listen closer, and when we don't get things right, we admit it.
6: Essentially, what it's done is it's changed Wigan from a town where the authorities did things to people to a town where we do things together.
1: Now, this all sounds lovely, but does it work? Well, according to the council, it does.
0: I mean, the first thing is that we've managed to balance our budgets... We've got healthy life expectancy. Years of life where you're fit and well and not on medication have increased by seven years in our more deprived areas. We've got brilliant school achievement results. 82% of our residents support the principles of the, of the Wigan deal. And we've seen a 59% increase in... Though, of
1: course, not everyone supports the Wigan deal. <sighs>
7: I think in general, I I would say, uh, you know, working class and people from the Northwest don't have that sort of relationship. There's a rather sort of, you know, there's a a, a rather cynical, humorous, you know, bantering side to, to people's personalities, which means they don't or wouldn't admit to, you know, being excited about something like that.
1: Reporter Andrew Noel again.
7: Some people are well aware of it, some people have benefited from it, some people would tell you that they've no idea what it is, some people would maybe be a bit more sceptical.
1: There were passionate protests after a residential facility for people with learning disabilities was closed and after the council decided to shut some libraries. There's a nearly 3,000-strong Facebook group called Wigan Council, What Are You Doing To Our Towns? Its timeline is filled with heated debates, not least about that hardy perennial reduced bin collections.
7: Big shops have moved out of the town centre, services have had to change, there are half started and half finished infrastructure projects, there are ideas which have not got off the drawing board and the areas they're supposed to renovate probably don't look that great but that's, that's to be expected.
1: Andrew takes a measured approach to the question of whether things have actually improved because of the Wigan deal.
7: Most of its achievements look best when you compare the situation that other councils are in, which have not done what Wigan has done.
1: To take one example, Northamptonshire County Council has effectively gone bankrupt, forced to make drastic or total cuts to all social services as well as to bus routes, libraries and maintenance, with nothing to replace them.
7: At the newspaper, we might occasionally make a bit of a comment to the council about just how many times the deal sign gets used on their photos and stuff and how they sort of say that everything they do is part of the deal. We might sort of make a bit of fun of them for that, but like it or not, the deal probably has insulated Wigan from the worst of it. I don't think they've got better, but things haven't perhaps got much worse. And... That's probably not to be sneezed at. Things have had to change in order to stay the same.
1: Sunshine House was one of the beneficiaries of the Wigan deal, but it predates it. The deal, in other words, did have some foundations to build on.
3: I've been doing this job in the community uh, for about 22 years now.
1: Over lunch, Barbara Nettleton tells us how she got started. But first she asked my producer to get the mic out of her face while she's eating.
3: Don't put that on while well, I'm eating me eat in. My oh yeah, yeah. I throw you out. Yeah. <laughs>
1: She says Sunshine House emerged organically, not long after she moved to the neighborhood.
3: And one Saturday morning, I went off work, and this old woman was hanging through a bedroom window blowing a whistle, and then all these neighbors are running around in the nighties and, and, and night work and I thought, oh my God, what's happening here?
1: Seeing this scene of chaos, a woman crying from her bedroom window, neighbors running amok, Barbara was scandalized, but then she found out what was going on.
3: Drug addicts had broken, and so she was blowing this whistle for help.
1: Where were the police, she thought? The incident prompted her and a few neighbors to start a home watch. That evolved into a residence association which quickly grew to include 200 households.
3: And just got together and had a look at what we're wrong. Like, why do we not get our streets cleaned and bins emptied on a regular basis? Why, why do they not come round and check the drains and the streetlights? And then we've just grown gradually over years and grown to demand, really, and change.
1: In recent years, Sunshine House has received funding from the council to expand its scope.
3: I think the biggest change that struck me is that all of a sudden, they needed us. So before the Ostia Times, they didn't really need us. We were just... There. But I think, no, there's a different partnership...
1: But of course, there's still a long way to go.
3: I don't think there's enough work done at the moment with the rough sleepers, the homeless, the drugs, the police, the issues we have with young people.
1: Wigan is still extremely under-resourced, she says, especially in comparison to the nearest city.
3: Well, the cities always take the cream, don't they? I think we're the poor relation to Manchester. I, don't, I never think we're a part of Manchester. And if you ask people around here to give you their address, they'll say Lancashire because that's where everybody feels that that's where they belong, that's where we used to be. And when we moved over to Greater Manchester, um, we feel that we would never get get the cream of the crops, we never get the first choice of anything. So we're a deprived area that just seems to have to do it yourself.
1: In other words, while grouping towns into city regions seems to be the policy approach of choice, it's a controversial one. I mean, there are some people, as you know, who would argue the efficient way to do this is to generate wealth through cities and allow it to spread in in their region? I
6: suppose I would just say that that has demonstrably failed and that the trickle-out model from, say, Manchester to Wigan clearly hasn't worked.
1: MP Lisa Nandy again.
6: I mean, you only need to take a walk down our local high street to see that. The spending power simply isn't there anymore. We've lost the working age population and so you've got money lenders, charity shops, M&S is going, the post office is closing... You know, you reach a tipping point where that just doesn't work at all. And it's disrespectful too because towns aren't just dormitories for cities. That's part of the political anger that we've seen expressed in the last not just three or four years, but actually 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. The model is fundamentally broken. It does not work.
1: Andrew Carter, chief executive of the Centre for Cities,
5: doesn't agree. We should always be mindful about whether we think scale is a factor that actually influences policy success. He says that fundamentally cities are the
1: scalable engines of economic growth.
5: Where we've seen some of our cities do well, that's actually been beneficial to the towns that are in their sort of orbit. Now, there's a different story for towns that are miles away from anywhere, very isolated places, but for those that are in reasonable proximity to our cities, Mm -hmm. success of our cities is good for those towns themselves.
1: It's not always the case that big urban areas thrive and you can get huge amounts of poverty within apparently quite successful cities. Take London, for example. But secondly, even when there is success in these urban areas, it's not always the case that they drag the surrounding regions along in their way.
5: You're right to point out that you know, growth, as it were, is not sufficient mm-hmm. to improve the lives of everyone, but it is necessary. Okay? Yeah. And then we have political choices about the degree to which we invest in the skills and the education systems to allow people to make themselves reasonably competitive in the labour market. We do see some towns that are super successful or reasonably successful in absence of of a nearby reasonably successful city. But it's very difficult to make general policy on the back of that. So people say to me, you know, Yorville, right? Yorville is a very successful town. That's because we build MOD helicopters there right? You know, the exceptions tell us nothing about generalisable policy. Carter is wary of what he
1: sees as a tendency to pit towns against cities.
5: A lot of the conversation gets into this kind of zero-sum conversation. One can only grow at the expense of the other. The reality is the opposite.
1: He thinks the story of how cities improved can actually teach us a lot about how to improve towns.
5: 30 years ago, When we talked about Britain's cities, we talked about them as problems, Mm. as things to be managed, right? Liverpool, the conversation was how we manage decline. Part of the story actually was to say, well, hang on a minute. What are the strengths that our cities have? How can we maximise and make the most of those rather than always focus on the problems or the Mm. challenges or the deficits? I am resistant to left-behind kind of terminology for towns because it's precisely the same perspective. It's saying these places are left behind, there are lots of problems. And yet, when you go to places like Wigan, what you see and what you gauge with are people that are enormously proud of their place, right? They see the value. And so using terminology left-behind reinforces the negative, I worry, rather than think about how we maximise the advantages.
1: While Carter and Lisa Nandy might see the way forward
5: for towns somewhat differently, they do converge on this key point. Our political and economic system is largely blind to the needs of places, whether they're big or small, whether they're cities or towns. So it's the need of place. The need of place, right? I mean, we live in a very, very centralised economy. Most decisions that affect the everyday lives of people are taken far away from them. I would hope in a kind of post-Brexit Britain that those policies would be designed as well as being delivered at more local scale than they currently are.
1: So Carter says calling towns left behind turns residents into victims rather than agents of change. Fur a pay-as-you-feel cafeteria in Wigan understands the importance of agency.
4: It's a, it's a well-known saying in, in, in the local area, Wigan.
1: Fred Winstanley is a kitchen volunteer.
4: It just means you're hungry, you're wanting some food. When they're hungry, they just say, hey, I'm fur-klempt tonight.
1: fur is a real junk food cafe, using surplus and donated food to prepare nearly everything.
4: A lot of its food lots will be going to landfill. There's nothing wrong with that. And a lot of stuff on top of that, it's not even out to date, it gets donated.
1: Director Shirley Southworth is conscious of how the place is framed.
7: We're right in the middle of two big housing estates that are quite deprived. But one of the things we're very keen on is, is promoting ourselves as an environmental project rather than a poverty project. People are proud and... For us to be saying oh well you can't afford to feed your family so we'll do it for you was was detrimental really so we've gone down the route of asking people to come and help us save this food and save the planet that takes away the stigma attached to the people who do have to come
1: that resonates with alicia who we meet as she's finishing up a meal with her two young boys
2: you know it's unfair for uh, nature to throw up food I know we buy more than we eat and we produce more than we can eat. In Poland, because I'm from Poland, we've got law that you can't give away food and that's not good.
1: Alicia says she brings everyone who visits her to Furklempt, not just because it's affordable but because it's good for the environment.
2: I think that offices or something that people should come here because you don't waste food and you're an example that that's not place for poor people no that's place for everyone
1: but isn't the Wigan deal simply complicit in making austerity work Trimming local services while asking residents to take more responsibility for their own lives in an attempt to reduce public spending doesn't sound exactly like something a Labour-led council should be doing, does it? I put this to Donna Hall, Wigan Council CEO. If
0: I can turn that question on its head a little bit and think about if we hadn't done this, we haven't cut any frontline services, we've just changed the way we work to support our residents in a different way. So I don't think that's... Conservative or Labour or any party I think that's just pragmatism austerity has had a devastating impact on our communities absolutely devastating impact I can say that now because no one can sack me I'm in my last week but it has if we hadn't done this what would be the outcome for Wigan it would be a hell of a lot worse than it is now
1: what if I were to say that the Wigan deal sounds more like damage limitation than laying the basis for renewed growth I mean it's It's dealing with austerity rather than sort of laying a springboard for the future. Would that be fair?
0: Mm, No, I think it's a little bit harsh, I'll be honest. We were described as the only council with a coherent response to austerity of anywhere in the in the country at the moment. And if we'd have just gone along the route of most other councils, borrowed lots more money, I don't think that's helping anybody. Pass the burden on to council taxpayers, I don't think that's helpful. Or close lots of frontline services again, I don't think that's helpful. So given the situation we were faced with, I think we've we've given it a pretty good go.
1: So, and this is the big question, is the Wigan deal a model for towns across the UK? If I was advising another
3: council or another authority, I'd say don't hesitate to take on the deal, take on the skeleton and dress it your own way.
1: Of course Wigan isn't the only place harnessing the strength of the community to improve local life. In Whitney, major cuts to local bus services spawned a community-driven rideshare programme, Oldham amongst England's poorest towns, serves healthy, locally-sourced meals to its thousands of schoolchildren every day, and Doncaster is trying to reimagine its town centre with small businesses and artisans. But the deal is unique in its breadth and depth. It's not just one piecemeal solution to a particular problem. As Lisa Nandy explains, it's a structural shift.
6: The crucial ingredient is not just that we've got a willing and active citizenry, I think you find that everywhere. What we've got is a council that increasingly although it's been slow at times and a bit painful is willing to give up power in order that others
1: might have more. Ian Warren a data analyst with the Centre for Towns says this relinquishing of power isn't just essential for local councils it's essential at the national level too.
4: You've got lots of power in the centre at the moment the worry is that with Brexit and other populist right movements that this anger is going to continue to be expressed if you don't give a away some of your powers you yourselves are going to come under threat so you have to
1: keep what you've got by giving it away. Ian's keen to see this happen not just in towns that are near cities but in those that are really on their own as well.
4: The town in the country which exposes this most powerfully is Rill in North Wales a town of 30,000 people which is isolated on the North Wales coast not within easy connectivity of uh, nearest city the tourist industry is still there but it's much smaller than it was The fundamental question that I would have of a place like Ril, which is a very difficult question, I don't like asking it, is Ril viable as a town? In my opinion, yes, it has to be defended, it has to have a future, but it's not just Ril. There are places all over the country which don't fall under the remit of a city, Mm. which have tens of thousands of people, and no discernible industrial or economic future.
1: It strikes me one of the things is you can innovate in towns instead of cities, so you why, know, rather than giving the first 5G to Bristol, give it to Rill. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it acts as a magnet.
4: Yeah, Rill has one of the worst broadband access in the whole country. There are 400,000 digital sector jobs in London. There are 250 in my town. Yeah. So it, as an economy, if you're promoting the digital sector as a way to drive economic growth, fantastic. But can you distribute it out a bit? If you are thinking about the jobs of the future, please think about where the jobs of the future are going to be, because if they're not in towns, then those towns don't have a future.
1: And as we've seen, the political parties are taking heed, with Theresa May's Towns Fund, the Labour Party's promises to shift the focus onto neglected communities. But the future of towns, says Ian, depends not just on political change, but on changing narratives.
4: Well, if you're from Northwest, north-west where I'm from, the home of the Industrial Revolution, Bolton, Oldham, Rochdale, Wigan. What was historically called Cottonopolis, which is yeah. the, the towns around Manchester. Their contribution to the world, not just to the Northwest, is unparalleled, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion in the North, unsurprisingly. Part of the problem we're seeing now is that people know the contribution that they once made, that their grandfathers and grandmothers made and they believe that they no longer make that contribution because somebody else makes that contribution now. That contribution happens in London or it happens in Manchester. Bolton isn't involved.
1: So we need to find a new story, as it were. Yeah. They We've need got to... an old story, but we don't have a new one.
4: Those places have historically had a purpose, mm-hmm. and lots of those places now are struggling to find that. It's for those places to do it for themselves because they can do it and trust them to deliver it if a place is given the power and the resources, and the local politicians include the local community in the decisions that are made, have got a much better chance mm-hmm. of turning a place round than if you sat in a desk in Westminster and deciding it for them.
3: I think we've been laughed at in Wigan. I think um, it's, yeah, been, it's been flat caps and ferrets and coal miners and, you know, Wigan Pier. And I think, no, I think they're looking at Wigan in a different light. I think we're, we're leading the light as tones. You know, for me, it were the best tone there is.